It was Easter morning and uh, two disciples were on the road, weary-eyed, worried, confused, upset. One was named Cleopas. And it's possible that his unnamed companion was his wife, maybe, if this is the case. Her name might have been uh, Mary, um, according to John 19.25. It talks about a clopas anyway. We, we, won't, we will never know. Now, <clears throat> these two, Clopas and his companion, are walking away from Jerusalem, the geographical centre of their faith, to a nearby town, Emmaus, which we think was a Roman garrison. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a geographical pull towards Jerusalem. Kind of a spiritual magnet attracting the characters in the divine drama to Jerusalem. It was where the ministry of the cross was. It was where the resurrection happened. It was where the Last Supper occurred. It was where Jesus died and rose. It is the charged place where the drama of salvation was unfolding. So for Cleopas and his companion to be walking away from Jerusalem, away from the capital city, they're going against the grain. And in going to a Roman garrison town of all places, they were specifically choosing a rival centre of worldly power. I don't know if they were consciously doing that, but that's what it looks like. Why on the day of the resurrection would you go in that direction if you're a disciple? Maybe Luke's saying something, hinting maybe symbolically at the fact that they are also going in the wrong spiritual direction. Now, it's totally reasonable to identify with these two. We all tend towards walking the wrong way, don't we? We all find ourselves wanting to walk away from Jerusalem, so to speak, and want to walk towards Emmaus. We all fall into the trap of seeking security in Emmaus rather than Jerusalem. Anyway, these, these two are doing that, and they're having a DNM. A DNM. Do you know what I mean by DNM? Everyone know? Yeah. If you don't know DNM, on youth group camps, they would always say, we're going to have a DNM tonight, which was code for waffle session about our issues with a bit of Jesus thrown in. We'd always stay up late talking about the girls we had crushes on and whether Jesus wanted me to go out with her or not. <laughs> Year nine discipleship. Well, anyway... This wasn't any old Christian late night DNM. Because while they're waffling on, trying to work out what had been happening, Jesus appeared out of nowhere and interrupted them. It's highly likely that Cleopas and his friend thought, maybe thought, because they didn't recognise him at first, maybe they thought he was like a spy, because they were feeling jumpy. All kinds of people were being arrested and questions were being asked and the Christians were nervous. So it would have taken some courage for him to admit that they were disciples and that they understood what was going on. They didn't recognise Jesus because this was a kind of a peculiar feature of the resurrected Jesus. He was a bit strange looking in his resurrected body. And it wasn't something that 
renew that in the resurrected body. There's no kind of prophecy or prediction that this would happen in the Old Testament. Uh, it's something we learn from Jesus' resurrected body. There are many times when he appears to the disciples, and at first they don't recognise him. But also, perhaps they don't recognise him because they are walking the wrong way spiritually. So they don't even have the right framework with which they can understand the resurrection yet. They have a flawed wisdom. And so Jesus interrupted comically. Uh, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Now we know already from um, our understanding of Jesus that he hated sin, but he loved sins. And he loved to get down at their level and sort of get into their space and have a chat. And this is what's going on here. So Cleopas's answer to this question reveals that at one level, this disciple going in the wrong direction knows all the facts. He knows all the correct details. Looking downcast, he says, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And there's obviously irony here here because Jesus is the only one who really does know what happened. He was there. Verse 19. What things, Jesus asked? Here are the facts. Ready? Discipleship. He knows them all. He knows the data about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Tick. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. Tick. And they crucified him. Correct. A plus on the exam. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That's true as well. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen vision of an angel, seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Tick. They got all the data right. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Cleopas and his friend know all the data, but they don't get the pattern. They don't get the right way to understand it yet. Because they'd hoped that Jesus would have liberated Israel from the Roman powers, from the Roman Empire, so that they could be free with all of Israel to worship God in peace and holiness. And if it was Jesus who was to do this, then he must have failed because they crucified him, says Cleopas. They crucified him, but but we hoped that he would redeem Israel. In earlier in Luke, um, in Ze- Zechariah's prayer, a prayer of prophecy about the newborn Son of God, the coming Messiah, uh, he says, He has come to his people and will set them free. This is the Messianic hope. It was the hope of those who, who, who believed in, in Jesus as the Messiah. But Cleopas thinks his hope is in vain. He thinks it's all out the window. There's no clearer indication in Jesus' death. He was meant to conquer and not be conquered. And you can hear it in the disciples of Jesus, these, these disciples, the dashed hopes. He'd raised their hopes and then died. And so he thinks that the women's visions of angels is just 
you know, it's just uh, made up stories. He doesn't really believe it. Because if he did, he wouldn't be going to a mate, sort of, if it was really true, if he thought it was really true. As far as he's concerned and his friend's concerned, his companion, these were old wives' tales. So their hopes are dashed. People are grasping at straws, they think. And many people today would say similar things, wouldn't they? They acknowledge Jesus as a person, but then they'd say the story of his resurrection uh, it's sort of made up stories, isn't it? Just like Cleopas and his friend think. But see, what they didn't know was that in reality, yes, they crucified him, and that was how he would redeem Israel. And Jesus' resurrection was going to prove this. And this is the pattern, this is the kind of the key to interpretation that they needed to understand their faith. We often see things that are in front of us and don't get it, don't we? It's like you walk through a contemporary art gallery. I remember being in, the, in Paris in the, in the modern art museum there in Pompidou, what is it? It's, yeah, that's it. And I remember um, looking at, I made the, 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 the ultimate Philistine comment when I just saw some scrunched up cardboard on the wall and I said, I could have been a great artist, you know, cynically. But when you don't get art, you sort of interpret it crudely like a Philistine. Uh, when you don't have the right interpretive key, so to speak. And maybe that's the same for people when they're trying to understand the Bible and understand who Jesus is. If you're looking at it from the wrong angle, you'll see, think it's all a lot of made-up stories. We don't have that natural intuition. We might even get our facts straight. There's not one thing that Cleopas says about Jesus that's wrong. But his sadness and his running from Jerusalem reveal that he doesn't see the true picture. He doesn't know how to correctly interpret this data. So this is why Jesus says, Oh, how foolish you are. One of their problems was that they were reading the Bible with the wrong questions. They, they like everyone else in Israel, was reading the Bible through the lens of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. Right? That's what they're looking for. But what they didn't realise was that God was going to redeem Israel through suffering. Was it not necessary that the Christ must suffer these things and then enter into glory? This is the ultimate pattern, the big pattern of the Bible that's repeated in big and small. This is the pattern that Cleopas and his companion didn't have. This is the path of God, a path of suffering love, a path of self-denial. So Jesus then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, showed them himself in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. This was not just a few isolated passages. It wasn't like he just pulled out Isaiah 53 and maybe a bit of Psalm 22 and said, look, here I am. It wasn't just like that. It was the whole lot. From Genesis to Chronicles. Apparently, in Jesus' day, Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Bible and the prophets were placed earlier. Anyway, a bit of detail. 
data. Better get the data right. <laughs> All of this told of God's anointed take, taking on of Israel's suffering and the world's suffering, dying and rising, and new creation, God's new people. This was prophesied to happen and it had happened. And Jesus was providing them with this interpretive key, the pattern of his own life, which reveals the deepest meaning of scriptures. What is Genesis about? Oh, it tells us about all kinds of things. But one of the things it tells us about is about Adam, the failed son of God. And we look at Jesus and we see the victorious new Adam, the son who did not fail, but had victory. We know this when we read it through the lens of Christ. What about Moses and the giving of the Ten Commandments? We just read the Ten Commandments. What, how do you read that in light of Christ? I don't know what Jesus would have said, but you could say the law is the righteousness of Christ, isn't it? The Ten Commandments, commandments show us our need for Christ. The Ten Commandments show us what God gives us through Christ. In other words, we are given the holiness of Christ when we are saved in Jesus. We are idolaters. We are blasphemers. We are Sabbath breakers. The law shows us uh, the righteousness of Christ in contrast with us and our need for salvation. I could go on and do this through the whole Bible. Others in the room might be able to do it even better than me. Some people make it their whole life seeing Jesus through the, as a lens through which we look at the whole Bible, the kind of suffering and Messiah. The entering into the promised land, the time of the judges, the kings, the time of the exile into Babylon. This all has a new kind of way for us to understand it in light of Jesus. It points to his life, his death, his resurrection. So the fact that they couldn't recognise him also goes to the fact that they couldn't recognise events that had just happened in Jesus' life. Maybe what Luke is saying is that we can only know and recognise Jesus and we learn to see him within the true story of God, <coughs> Israel and the world. So can you see how the story of the road to Emmaus is kind of also a bit of a metaphor for our life as Christians? Think of the times in your life when your hopes have been dashed and then the turning to someone you might, who might be able to help and then you discover that Jesus is speaking to you in the Bible. His voice comes through clearly, the truth. And just like the Christian life, we often find, just like Cleopas did and his friend, that Jesus was always there with you in those hard times. Warming your heart, showing himself as you break bread together with your Christian brothers and sisters. You can bring your problems and your worries on the road to Emmaus, just like Cleopas and his companion did. The thing is also, though, as we think about this way of reading the Bible in light of Jesus, is we've got to hold the resurrection at the centre of all of this too. Because the resurrection brings hope to this concept of the suffering Messiah. It fulfils it. It's the jewel. And so now there's a new way of telling the story of the Bible. Tom Wright says this. He's the, you know, the, the, the big expert on the resurrection, loves writing about the resurrection. He says, 
The resurrection isn't just a surprise, happy ending for one person, but is the turning point for everything else. It is, the, it is the point at which all the old promises come true at last. The promises of David's unshakable kingdom, the promises of Israel's return from the greatest exile of them all, and behind that again, the promise that all the nations would now be blessed through the seed of Abraham. It's from the book Surprised by Hope, which you can get at the back. Are your hearts on fire as you read the Bible, hear the Bible, taught? Cleopas's heart was on fire, as was his, was, was his companion. So verse 20, 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So as they approached the village, they asked him to stay with them. And they did that because they, they were getting excited about God and about the scriptures. Now they had this key to understand the Bible in a new way because of what Jesus showed them. Well, they didn't realise it was Jesus showing them. They still didn't really know who this guy was. They still didn't really get it yet. The same thing happens to us. The, the, the Bible is like a raging fire when Jesus shows us, um, uh, speaks to us through by, his, by the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible. It just burns within our souls. Now, the, the, the second scene of this story is a meal. But before we get into that, let's pause in Luke 24. And I want to transport, transport us back to Genesis chapter 3. The story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the first meal in the Bible. Genesis 3 verse 6. When the, wo- when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The eyes of Adam and Eve were open to sin, to insecurity, to shame, to pain, to judgment. The innocence of their love and their naked bodies suddenly, in a moment, due to their sin, turned into their eyes being opened to, to all the ugly stuff, their own dark hearts. And suddenly they were afraid of God. And this story of Adam and Eve and their first meal in the in the in God's creation was told to the Hebrew people time and time again. This was the beginning of the suffering that had come upon the human race. Death itself was traced to that moment of rebellion. The whole creation was subject to decay after that meal. Now let's transport back again to the road to Emmaus and this meal on this, this first meal on the day of the new creation. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. So their eyes were opened and they recognised him. They were beginning to see him as he opened the scriptures 
Then they fully saw him as they broke the bread. Through Adam and Eve's meal, their eyes were open to sin and evil. Through the two disciples' meal with Jesus, their eyes were open to the re- see the resurrected Son of God, the very embodiment of the gospel. Luke, the writer, is echoing the first meal of creation, and he's writing about the first meal of the new creation. It's cool. Cleopas and his companion had discovered that the long curse of Adam and Eve had been broken forever. Death had been defeated. God's new creation brimming with life and joy, a new possibility had burst upon the world of decay and sorrow. Jesus risen from the dead is the beginning and the sign of this new world. And in Jesus, he's not just resuscitated. Not, he's not like a Lazarus or a Jairus' daughter who would come back to life like that sort of miraculously, but then they would just go on and suffer and die again, wouldn't they? No, this is different. He'd been transformed. When the disciples finally got to see the resurrected Jesus, their eyes were fully open and they saw something they'd never seen before. Thomas, for example. And we're going to look at him uh, next week. Thomas says, My Lord and my God, his eyes are open. Mary Magdalene said, I have seen the Lord. John said, We have seen his glory. And the disciples on the Emmaus road said, Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked? So just for a short time, only a matter of decades, 33 and a bit years maybe, the doors to the throne of heaven were open and God came near. His majesty could be seen by people's eyeballs. Heaven touched the earth. And now earth could know heaven. So as we study this, we are to have our hearts burning within us. As we understand the scriptures with a new and fresh clarity. Luke is pointing, as he writes about this meal, to the Last Supper. Cleopas and his friend weren't there because they weren't one of the twelve, but it's sort of hard to not think about it. Just merely days out, it was just last Thursday, you know, and he's doing it again, he's breaking bread with them. But he did this all the time too. Jesus was a bread breaker. Meals were his thing. It was part of his ministry strategy. But also, Luke wants us to point forward to the Lord's Supper, doesn't he? To the breaking of bread, which quickly became a central symbol, um, like a sacrament for the church, where we remember Jesus' death and his sacrifice for us just like he told the disciples to do. Though Jesus was no longer physically present, the disciples in the future, they were to discover him living with them and in them through the reading of the scripture and through worship together, through sharing the bread and wine together. And when we read from Acts 2.42 onwards about the early church, you can see them doing that. The Lord's Supper, and think about it, it's a, it's a dramatisation of that interpretive key that Jesus was teaching. It's a dramatisation of the gospel. And we participate in that. We're not actually having communion today. A bit of a shame. Bad planning on my behalf. But um, when you go forward and you take the bread and you drink the wine and you remember, you're participating in a dramatisation of that interpretive key. 
the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Tom Wright also says, if you take the Bible away, the Lord's Supper, it becomes like magic. And you don't want that. Also, though, if you take the Lord's Supper away, then the Bible becomes dry, detached from real life. Put them together and you have the centre of Christian living, as Luke understood in the early church and the contemporary church. So this is why we make the Bible the centre of our um, discipleship and worship, but also we do do communion. It could be easy for me to make the mistake of saying, doesn't matter, we'll do it once a year, because we have to, it's not the main game. But I think there's something important about it. Jesus certainly thought so, as did the early church, the apostles. Paul teaches about how important it is to not mess around with communion. Take it seriously. Don't see it as magic. It's dramatisation of the gospel. But what you do with it says something about what you believe, so that's why you don't mess around with it. I pray that for all of us, our head and our heart be kind of connected as we engage with this material. That's what happened to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. Jesus opened their hearts and joined their heads to it. So Jesus vanished from sight, as resurrected people tended to do, if Jesus is our pattern. And uh, they said, work our hearts burning within us. And they were turned around and converted, it seems, because they headed back to Jerusalem on the right direction, geographically and perhaps spiritually too. Jesus speaks to us through the Word, through the Bible, and he speaks to us in our fellowship and in our worship as we interact with each other, as we engage with each other. And we get clarity of vision this way. And this gives us an impetus for action, to go out and tell other people, which is what Cleopas and his friend wanted to do and did do. This is a story about us as well. It's not just about those two disciples. There will be times when you are walking to Emmaus in the wrong direction and Jesus will show up unexpectedly and speak to you through the Bible, through Christian worship, through the Lord's Supper perhaps. Let Jesus speak to you. Let him warm your hearts. Let him stir your heart. Experience the gospel dramatised as you worship him. A new day has become begun. This is the post-resurrection world. God has had the victory. So turn back and head towards Jerusalem. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here who um, is perhaps on the road to Emmaus, perhaps it's all of us in different ways, um, you have, can you interrupt their conversation, their DNA, their reciting of the data, and turn their hearts around? Please help us to um, go to the Bible for our um, hearts to be warmed not to amaze us, 
Please help us to trust that you do have um, the right things to say to us and the answers to our life's questions. Please help us to see you as we read the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and to trust that God has had a plan for the world all along, and that plan uh, was unfolded on, at Easter. And you died on the cross and rose again. As we go through the rest of the series, Lord, uh, we help us to understand the resurrection and also our own hope for resurrection of our own bodies. Amen.